You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on neurology. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. John Rickard. Dr. Rickard is the Executive Vice President for Research and Clinical Programs at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. We're going to be discussing new developments in this disease that now affects over 400,000 people in the United States and 2.5 million people worldwide. I know the Society has been in existence since 1946. Could you tell us what your mission is today? Our mission is the same as it was in the 1940s, and that is to end the devastating effects of MS. We do that through a number of efforts, many of them aimed at research to find the cure, but we also spend a great deal of effort in programs and efforts to make life more livable for people who suffer from MS. In practice, I certainly saw patients who had vague symptoms, such as paresthesias, weakness, and fatigue, often did not even think of multiple sclerosis till four or five years later when they had their first, what we would call their clinical isolated syndrome. What should doctors think about when they see patients with vague symptoms? Should everyone have an MRI? Where do we go in making this diagnosis? Certainly, the diagnosis is a lot easier when an inflammatory event in the brain or spinal cord involves motor pathways or sensory pathways or visual pathways. But if they involve parts of the nervous system that are involved with cognition, for example, it can be very difficult to make the diagnosis early or even be aware that there's an inflammatory process going on. Fatigue and cognitive dysfunction are two of the problems that we can see with MS that if they occur after the diagnosis is already made, it's pretty easy to assign them to MS. But if those are the first symptoms, it can be very difficult to determine. It helps a lot if you can find a subtle neurologic abnormality on exam. That would be a clue to get an MRI scan, for example. Certainly, if you MRI'd everybody with a little fatigue, it would be cost ineffective. So you do have to look for probably subtle neurologic signs, maybe an upgoing toe or little eye deviation or something that might give you a clue that the reasons to look more closely for something that's inflammatory in the nervous system. There is evidence that the earlier we start treatment, the better the patient will do as far as his long-term disabilities are concerned. Doesn't this put an added pressure on the doctors who are seeing these patients for the first time? Yes, absolutely. We know that if we treat someone after their first inflammatory neurologic event, before you can make the clear-cut diagnosis of MS because there's not yet been dissemination in time, there hasn't been a second event, we know that starting therapy at that early stage, the progression of the disease will delay the onset of clinically definite MS and will improve the chances that someone will have a benign course of MS. So pressure really is on to make the diagnosis as early as possible, even when the initial symptoms are vague. Do we have drugs now that will make a difference? We now have six FDA-approved drugs, all of which are new in the last 15 years. There are three beta interferons, Copaxone, Tysabri, and Mitoxantrone for various phases of the disease. You know, since we look upon this as an autoimmune disease now, does a vaccine, a DNA vaccine, have any role in the future? Well, there are two ways of looking at vaccines. One is if we can identify a infectious agent as a culprit, as a trigger for the disease, and parenthetically, Epstein-Barr virus is a current candidate for that, a vaccination would 
potentially prevent the disease and wipe it out. It may well be that a successful vaccination may actually represent our major method of trying to prove that a given virus is the culprit. We may have no other ways of really proving it except to see if we can prevent the disease from occurring with a a particular vaccine. There are other kinds of DNA vaccines that your listeners may have heard about, and these are related to immunotherapies. So, for example, there is a DNA-based vaccine currently under study that tries to specifically suppress the immune response to one of the major myelin proteins, the myelin basic protein. Your listeners who may be immunologically oriented may know that there's such a thing as high zone tolerance, that if you give a large amount of antigen, particularly by injection, that you can actually suppress the immune response to that antigen. So what these researchers have done is taken the DNA for myelin basic protein, put it into a vaccine form, injecting it intramuscular where a large amount of myelin basic protein will be made in an effort to specifically suppress the immune response to myelin basic protein and leave the rest of the immune system intact. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment on neurology on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. John Rickert. Dr. Rickert is the Executive Vice President for Research and Clinical Programs at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. I remember in practice female patients of mine who had MS, and they never felt as well as when they were pregnant. And it was not uncommon that after their pregnancy and the delivery of a healthy child, they would have an exacerbation of their multiple sclerosis. Could you comment on that as far as where that bit of information is going in research? That's an excellent question. And it stands to reason that pregnancy would be a relatively good time for a woman with an autoimmune disease because pregnancy is in many respects analogous to an organ transplant situation. So the immune system is going to see the paternal antigens on the fetus and want to reject the baby. So there are various mechanisms that prevent that from happening. Certainly the placenta serves as a good physical barrier, but there are various physiologic and biochemical changes that occur during pregnancy that are immunosuppressive. One of the candidates as an immunosuppressive substance produced during pregnancy is one of the estrogens called estriol, E-S-T-R-I-O-L. Some people pronounce that estriol. That gets produced during pregnancy, reaches maximum titers levels during the third trimester when the therapeutic effect of pregnancy on MS is greatest. And so we are now funding a large phase, late phase two trial that's being run by Dr. Rhonda Vosquil at UCLA of estriol in women with MS. And we are very hopeful that this will work. It certainly makes theoretic sense, and it's worth saying that this is an oral drug that uh, costs pennies to produce, so we're hopeful. The other six drugs that you mentioned earlier are all given intravenously, intramuscularly, subcutaneously. Is there anything else orally that may be on the horizon as far as a therapeutic agent? There are at least six other oral drugs in the pipeline. And without trying to sound like an encyclopedia, I'll go through some of these. Five of these are immunomodulatory and one is symptomatic. The five immunomodulatory drugs have all looked good in phase two trials and are now into phase three. One of them is called Fingolimod, F-I-N-G-O-L-I-M-O-D, codename FTY720 might be what your listeners here. It's produced by Novartis. It binds to the sphingosine 1 phosphate receptor on 
immune cells and prevents them from exiting the lymphatic tissue, prevents them from getting into the circulation. So ultimately prevents the immune cells from getting into the target tissue, the nervous system, preventing destruction. Biogen IDEC has a fumarate preparation that they call BG12, which has both anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective effects. It's been used to treat psoriasis for about 30 years already, and now is finally being studied in MS. Laquinamod, produced by Teva, modulates, for those of your listeners who are familiar with some immunology and know about Th1 and Th2 helper T-cells, it modulates the Th1, Th2 balance and induces the production of some immunosuppressive cytokines. That's into phase three. Teriflunamide, T-E-R-I-F-L-U-N-O-M-I-D-E, is an inhibitor of pyrimidine synthesis, so it affects immune cells as well as other rapidly dividing cells, so it's much more like an immunosuppressive agent. But it also has some immunomodulatory function by way of altering calcium mobilization, and that is into phase three. And the fifth of the immunomodulatories is cladribine, C-L-A-D-R-I-B-I-N-E, an oral immunomodulator that is a chemotherapeutic agent. And the FDA has already promised that they will fast-track its evaluation if the phase three data are positive. The sixth drug is a symptomatic drug that many, many people with MS will have this tried in them if it's approved by the FDA. It's already been through one phase three trial that was positive. They are going through a second phase three trial now. It is foraminopyridine, fampridine is the brand name, F-A-M-P-R-I-D-I-N-E. It blocks potassium channels and increases conduction velocity in demyelinated nerve. In the first phase three trial, about a third of the patients noted significant benefit with the primary outcome measure being speed of ambulation. You can't predict who is going to have benefits. So my guess is that most ambulatory patients with MS are going to have this drug tried if it becomes available. Well, to return to something that maybe I understand a little bit more, how about sunlight? There is good evidence that vitamin D make a difference and that the closer you are to the equator, the less likely you are to have multiple sclerosis. How do you think we should deal with the whole concept of vitamin D and sunlight? Well, we've known for years that MS is more common the further away from the equator that somebody lives, and particularly where one grows up. There is a significant amount of evidence that the agent that triggers this disease is an infectious agent, but now there is recent evidence to suggest that sunlight and vitamin D may be related as well. It's recently been shown that vitamin D has some immunosuppressive effects. And of course, vitamin D is produced upon sunlight exposure. And so people in climates away from the equator have less sunlight exposure, less vitamin D production, and therefore would have less of that immunomodulatory effect. And it's now been shown that people with MS do have lower vitamin D levels than people without MS. And so an important issue for us now is to determine whether or not vitamin D supplementation would be of any help. It's been calculated that the amount of vitamin D that would have to be supplemented in order to raise the levels in people with MS would actually be huge amounts. And so there is some worry about toxicity. So it's not the sort of thing that is yet at the point where we can recommend to people that they go out and take vitamin D. It's probably worth saying at this point that for this issue and 
thousands of other issues that your listeners may have questions about. We have a professional resource center, PRC, here at the MS Society where physicians and other healthcare professionals can call or email if they have any questions related to MS. And it can be related to therapies, they can be related to insurance issues, they can be related to what we know about the science of MS. And we can answer virtually any question they might have that may help them in their practice. I want to thank Dr. John Rickert, who's been our guest today. It's so important to remember that the mean age of multiple sclerosis onset is 30. This is a disease that is affecting our young and is disabling our young. We've been discussing new advances in multiple sclerosis. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to a special segment on neurology on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.